0: warm welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for joining me today. We're going to have a wonderful discussion. I am so glad to be joined in studio by Dr. Bradley Sickler. He is uh, an associate professor of philosophy. He's the program director for Master of Arts in Theological Studies and the J. Edwin Hartle Endowed Professor, which is a very uh, prestigious honor. And he's written a new book about that three-pound thing that's in your skull. And there is a lot to say about the brain, so I cannot wait to start my discussion. Brad, welcome to the show. Good to be here. Thank you so much. Now, this is uh, looks to be like a fascinating book. I've started it. I've stopped. I've started. I've stopped. I'm going to be getting through this entire book that way because I, I have to take it in small doses because it's so fascinating. And the parts that I read, I have to stop and think about. In other words, get my brain working. Right. And... So far, I am loving your book. So congratulations. Good. Thank you. And the the book is called God on the Brain, What Cognitive Science Does and Does Not Tell Us About Faith, Human Nature,
1: and the Divine. That's right. So the uh, main area that I've been working in for years is the intersection of science and Christianity. So my undergrad degree was in physics, and then I went to seminary, and then I went on to do my Ph.D. in philosophy. So I've always been interested in where those things intersect, and uh, you know, the 21st century has been described as the century of the brain. Uh, Everything we see all over the place is referencing our brain, uh, using our brain as the explanation for um, how we choose our mates, or how we choose our career, or how our religious beliefs form, which is where... Uh, my book comes in and how I got interested in it. But this attempt or this movement in our culture to uh, explain all of our personhood just by reference to the brain and the central nervous system is part of what I'm uh, a little concerned about and critical of in the book. I like that. Yeah, because I, I don't, I'm not on board with that reductionist view of, of human nature. So, Yay, yeah. that's awesome. So the book is really, uh, the reason I wrote it was to provide a defense of a biblical view of personhood and in particular that we are made uh, by God to know him and that we're spiritual beings. Mm-hmm. So those, those things our uh, spirituality and that we're made to know God and that our belief in God is therefore properly grounded. That's what motivated me to write the book because I, I feel like there are so many other voices out there that are trying to explain God away or trying to debunk religious belief um, based on brain science.
0: And you had me right away in the first couple of pages when you were, I guess, maybe looking at magazine covers, and it was a title about how the brain reads faces, and your thought was, that's interesting because my brain doesn't read faces, I read faces. That's right. And I thought, brilliant, Brad, that's exactly how I would feel about it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So let's, uh, I appreciate your motivation for doing this because I think that there's going to be a huge... Interest. Um, there is a huge interest in the brain, and um, let's talk about how uh, how we
1: view human nature. Well, I th- first of all, I want to say that I commend all the the brain science itself. But as with so many things, the issue isn't the science or the data or what we find when we do empirical studies. The issue is what we make of those and the lessons we try to draw on them. In other words, it's how we philosophically frame them that that causes me concern. So a biblical view of human nature uh, is that we are spiritual beings made to know God. And both of those things are under attack um, or under criticism from all these different branches of, you know, neuroscience, cognitive science, evolutionary psychology, evolutionary morality and biology, all these things that try to um, chip away at the reliability of our belief in god and try to say it's unfounded it's just the accidental byproduct of blind evolutionary processes and it really doesn't deserve to be treated seriously and hopefully we can grow our way out of it and mature as a species beyond these religious propensities that don't serve us anymore so the biblical view of personhood is that we are you know our bodies are important Um, But they aren't the sum total of who we are, that we have a spiritual component to our personhood as well, something immaterial, something beyond the material, something that can survive the death of the body. And uh, that ends up being really important, not just for what we call theological anthropology or the study of our human nature, but even for Christology or what we say about Jesus. For example, we're about to celebrate at the end of this month, the incarnation of Right, the mm-hmm. word becoming flesh, or the way it's also put, taking on flesh, and for that for that to be the second person of the Godhead found in the in the human person Jesus of Nazareth, there has to be some sort of um, identity or connection between the Spirit God and the human flesh that He puts on, and He's our first fruits. Right, we follow Him. And uh, that's why Paul says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord and we will take off these earthly tents and leave them behind. So there's a clear, it seems clear to me, uh, there's a clear emphasis on the part of our personhood that persists past the death of our body, goes to be with the Lord and then is clothed again. And so we're told that we will follow Christ in his pattern uh, where he did the same thing. So materialists about persons who claim... Christ sometimes get themselves into a kind of a complicated position because they need to end up saying that Jesus basically stopped being who he was while he was dead until his body got resurrected and then he resumed being who he was again. So, in a way, he almost went out of existence. So, that those sorts of Christological problems are also uh, of real concern to me if we start reducing human nature to nothing but a body. So the question is, you know, are we a little lower than the angels, as the scriptures testify, mm-hmm. or are we merely a little higher than the apes? And that's a it's a huge worldview difference that follows in terms of our ability to know, wow. um, our, our moral convictions. I mean, all sorts of stuff follows from this. So it, it at first it looks innocuous, like we're just talking about what happens in the brain and how it develops and how you can take care of it and things like that. But what creeps in, that reductionist view that creeps in, is really inimical to a biblical view of personhood.
0: Let me take a second to send a private message to my listeners. He's not even using notes. This is all coming off the top of his head. (laughs) All right, back with Brad Sickler, um, who has written a phenomenal book, and I'm very excited about this book, and I'm excited to get through it. It's about uh, our human brain, and uh, let's talk about science
1: and and Christianity is are they friends or strangers yeah well that that's been a, a misunderstood topic for a long time, and starting in the late nineteenth uh, century, there was an emergence of something called the warfare model. Um, Draper and White were the big pushers of this, and that that makes um, that sets Christianity and science at odds with each other and you'll often hear this sort of thing there are these two combatants, and only one will survive, and it's not going to be. Christianity, because every every time you turn around, science has dealt it another another blow, and it's just slowly losing ground and slowly losing credibility. But that is, I mean, historically, that just doesn't fit at all. You look at some of the great scientists of history, you look at Newton. Newton was, I mean, he had a few strange views, especially about the Trinity, but he was a, a committed christian believer spent more time studying and writing about the bible than he did about physics actually i didn't know yeah. that and i don't he, read a lot of newton yeah you don't no oh, yeah. <laughs> i know that comes I as i thought a everyone surprise, had you, like, the principia mathematica on of their course. nightstand yeah whatever that
0: is You just <laughs> said i get that yes
1: and kepler was the same way and boyle was the same way descartes Leibniz, all these innovators in the scientific revolution were believers and they they saw no conflict mm-hmm. but um even going back to like Copernicus and Galileo and the controversy about geocentrism and heliocentrism, which is going around which is the earth, the fixed center of the universe and everything orbits around it. Well, as the evidence unfolded with Galileo, especially uh, that view was uh, abandoned in exchange for the heliocentric view that says we go around the sun. So that did get the church in some hot water. But again, the interesting thing to note is Galileo never recanted his faith. It was really a sort of intra-church dispute between um, different factions in the Catholic Church that were competing for kind of uh, scientific primacy. But it wasn't atheist-scientist versus, you know, dogmatic, blind, religious zealots. These people were all believers on both sides. And, uh, you know, you take something even like Darwin. Darwin, in 1859, when he wrote The Origin of Species... It was widely criticized by a lot of scientists and accepted by a a significant number of important leaders in the church. So it's always been a complicated relationship. There has been conflict, but there's also been a lot of um, mutual respect and cooperation and trading of insights so that we can get a better, more rounded view of reality by taking both of these approaches and weaving them together. Mm -hmm. You're telling me a lot of things I don't know. Oh, (laughs) <laughs> you, That's good. Yeah, I can Isn't see it? that or delightful wait. smile
0: on your face. No, no, it's good. Because <laughs> I, I learn every time you come in, mm-hmm. and I wish you'd come in more often. But uh, anyway, um, let's talk about the—you yeah, started about the evolutionary explanations for belief in God. Maybe we can uh, start talking about that as well.
1: Yeah. There are um, two main branches of explanation that try to say— Evolutionary processes led to the origination of religious beliefs. So one of the, and and to, in particular, what we're talking about with religious beliefs, and I know a lot of people react to the word religion or religious, but that's just kind of how we talk about it in the academy. And so I'm just sticking with the terminology, but religious beliefs in particular, beliefs in gods or a god, belief in souls, that we are not just bodies, but we are animated by something spiritual and belief in life after death. So all three of those things are by all means natural, and even atheist cognitive scientists admit or recognize that these beliefs are natural. So then the question is, for them, where did they come from? So if you're an evolutionary naturalist, in in other words, you don't believe in God, you just believe in these evolutionary processes, you've got a really limited toolbox. You've basically got two tools you can explain are used to explain anything you find in any living thing. It has to either, um, you've got mutations, and then you've got natural selection. So everything that happens, every feature, every characteristic, not just physical ones like that we have teeth and ears and things like that, but even our cognitive features, how we tend to think, what we tend to believe, for example, these religious beliefs, you've got to explain them with one of those two tools. There's some sort of mutation or, or, you know, tweaking of the system through random errors and genetic copying or whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. And then if that's a helpful mutation, it might get selected and passed on. So you've got a very limited toolbox. But you can do two things with that. One of them is you can say these religious beliefs are directly beneficial and that's why they're selected. Or you can say, and that's the adaptationist view, Or you can say they aren't directly beneficial, but they're the byproduct of something else that's directly beneficial, and that's the non-adaptationist or indirect um, explanation. All right. Brad, let me take a
0: very short break. Dr. Brad Sickler is my guest. His new book is God on the Brain, What Cognitive Science Does and Does Not Tell Us About Faith, Human Nature, and the Divine. Be right back. Dad Sickler is my guest. His new book is called God on the Brain, What Cognitive Science Does and Does Not Tell Us About Faith, Human Nature, and the Divine. So, uh, Brad, we're off to a very interesting start. Uh, we were just before the break talking about
1: adaptations. What are the adaptations? Well, so directly, an adaptation uh, would be a benefit that religious belief confers on the person who has it. And that can vary in a number of ways. One, uh, one way of looking at it is is as costly signaling. So let's say I'm heavily involved in the religious activities of my group, and that means I attend ceremonies, I offer sacrifices, things like this. This is known as costly signaling because it takes an investment of my time and resources. And generally how that is interpreted, or this is the theory, is that I'm very committed to the group, that I'm a reliable member. Um, it also conveys moral rectitude, so I'm a good guy because I'm, I'm doing these things and I'm responsible and I'm deferential and honoring to the gods or the ancestors or whoever mm-hmm. it might be. And that can also tie to sexual fitness, so my attractiveness as a mate can be tied to me conveying those kinds of things, right? Look over here, ladies, I'm a serious guy and I mm-hmm. can be trusted, you know, and <laughs> yes. I'm responsible. Uh-huh. And look at how much rice I sacrificed. Yeah. So those kinds of things, that would be a direct benefit. That it, that it conveys um, cohesion, group membership, things like that.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, an indirect benefit, uh, so a non-adaptationist view, these seem to be um, a little more common, uh, increasingly more common. And that would be things like, suppose that there's some rustling in the trees and I have an alternative, I can either just ignore it and blow it off and say, oh, I don't know, just a random puff of wind. Or I can think it might be a tiger, or it might be you know somebody from a rival tribe who's coming to do some raiding or whatever. Mm-hmm. If I'm more cautious, if I err on the side of caution, then I'm more likely to um, survive. So this is known as agency detection. And then one approach of of this would be to say, sometimes our agency detection gets hyperactive, and these so it's known as a hyperactive agency detection device or mechanism. So I think there are agents there when there aren't, but it's in my interest to do that. So um, I overreact to things because that tends to make me safer than if I underreact to things. So it it isn't a direct benefit. But then the other thing I would tend to do is, again, ascribe agency to things that aren't really agents, things like trees uh, or weather patterns or volcanoes, Um, and then even invisible things that might be controlling the crops that maybe we displeased or something. So that's a non-adaptationist. And it's important to note like, how speculative these, these theories are. I mean, these are really just pretty wild shots in the dark. There's very little evidence to support them and certainly to like favor one over the other. Um, but humans are pattern-seeking. So like Stuart Guthrie wrote a book called Faces in the Clouds, and in that the, the proposal is It's good for us to learn to establish patterns and to, like, see. This is why people tend to see faces in potato chips or whatever. Oh, it looks like a saint or it looks like whoever. (laughs) Mm -hmm. No, it's just a potato chip. But we have this tendency to look for patterns, and it's the same sort of thing. That helps us survive, but um, because it is overactive and it sees patterns where there aren't any, we tend to fill in the blanks by introducing mysterious patterns. Beings into our into our worldview. That's so interesting. I, I'm still
0: stuck at the in the tree. I hear, I see a guy from another tribe with his pet attack tiger. I see both. <laughs> you saw one or the other, and I saw both. It was
1: trained killer tiger. Exactly, huh? yeah, exactly. That's the way to do it.
0: But your your brain is always trying to do self preservation. At some point, isn't it? Yeah,
1: and we are. And so that's why you know these. There's something plausible in a lot of these accounts because they do describe the way we act. I mean, we do, we are pattern seeking creatures, right? Humans in particular are h- highly pattern seeking. Mm-hmm. We do, we do associate, um, faithful, religious, uh, participation with morality yes, moral behavior, absolutely. things like that. Yeah. And you know, whether it deserves to be or not, it, we do use that as, as a proxy, as a, as a fill in, like they do this. So probably they're like that. Um, so, again, there's at least a grain of truth in all of these. But the, the the disturbing thing is trying to take all of this and use it as evidence to debunk those religious beliefs. Like, that's the part that is a real head-scratcher for me. Let's suppose it's true that humans tend to seek patterns, or let's suppose it's true that humans um, tend to overestimate agency. It could be that those very tendencies are exactly what God uses as The product of his intentional design of us that we might know him and reach out for him and perhaps find him, as Paul says in Acts 17. Why not think that God uses those human traits precisely for his purpose of inclining us to believe in him and to seek him and to come to know him? I mean, that's the part that to me is really important to differentiate the interpretation from the findings or the data or the observations. What do the observations mean? And this sort of thing happens all the time in science and Christianity or science and religion discussions, um, not just with the brain or the nature of humanity, but other things too. Brad, I want to go back to patterns because I'm still a little stuck there.
0: Um, talk about patterns and then also, uh, does our brain want to have
1: routine as well? Yeah. Are we, we, are routine and patterns, the same thing? Um, patterns, like visual patterns is what I'm, referring to there. Mm-hmm. So you see something and um, it's obscured, it's far away, but it looks like a face. Or, yeah, yeah, I mean faces in mm-hmm. particular are, are a big one that we tend to see all over the place. I mean mm-hmm. you cut a tree and it looks like a face, you know, you see a, a face pattern in there um, and that's supposed to aid us in quick recognition and then that allows us to spot, you know, to differentiate okay. people from other things or friendly people from Angry people, I mean, we see the patterns. I mean, we can discern emotion through facial expression, too, mm-hmm. even though we can't usually describe exactly why. Like, what is it exactly about my face that makes me look angry or happy right now? Right. A lot of times we can't say. We'll say, something. well, it's something in your eyes or in your mouth, and you can't always specify it, but we can all recognize it. So sometimes um, these things that are ineffable, they, uh, they elude a, a really strict kind of description But we know what's going on and we recognize it and we're generally very good at it. But sometimes we overreact or we're overreliant on these kind of um, intuitive assessments.
0: Mm -hmm. So I appreciate the clarification on, on patterns. I don't know why I popped routine in because you said maybe God uses patterns as a way of getting to know him better.
1: Well, it's all part of it. I mean, all, so, yeah. so there's, there's the visual patterns that we seek, but we're in general pattern seeking. Okay. seeking. And we do seek routine um, because we know that uh, we, we, we've come to learn, and again, I'll say something about this too, but we've come to learn how the world works, right? And the older we get, the more we know, um, you know, bread will nourish me, but gravel won't. I mean, little kids don't differentiate. They just put everything in their mouth. Mm-hmm. And so it takes time for us to learn What you know, how nature works. And so then we formulate laws of nature and we say, well, salt will always dissolve in water. And and we come up with these statements because that's what we like to do. We like to find these patterns. And that is an important part of what allows us to be moral agents, actually. And so um, I think, again, even the fact that we seek patterns, which is a necessary thing for us to do if we're going to have moral agency, is connected to a divine design plan, Even though some people would say, "Nope, it's just uh, it's just a random byproduct." It it allows us. It's the thing that allows us to act as moral agents. It's so interesting. All right, Um, we are uh, talking to
0: Dr. Brad Sickler, and he has written a book called "God on the Brain: What Cognitive Science Does and Does Not Tell Us About Faith, Human Nature, and the Divine." Uh, We're going to take a little break, but when we come back, there's lots more to talk about. something about uh, the brain states there's different states the brain has is that right Brad? Oh yeah Yeah. so I want to after the break pick up on that Um, we'll take a short break and we'll be right back All right, I am back with Dr. Brad Sickler, and he's written this amazing book on God, On the Brain, What Cognitive Science Does and Does Not Tell Us About Faith, Human Nature, and the Divine. It is available right now. You can go right over to Amazon or Crossway.
1: Yeah, uh, Barnes
0: & Noble. Barnes & Noble. You, I mean, it's all over. You this can is, get it at
1: Target or Walmart on their online services. Yeah,
0: and I've printed off some copies I can sell as well. On the, Yeah. I just yeah, did well, it right we'll, out there on the printer. That's that's the same kind of thing, isn't it? I think. I don't I'm not a lawyer. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but this is a book that I know people once they pick up will will enjoy it from cover to cover. I am working my way through it and it's the material is so fascinating. So God on the brain, uh Bradley Sickler is the is my my guest. All right, let's talk about brain states.
1: Uh Brad, what does that mean? Well, so your brain is, is always doing something, and what it's doing varies from time to time throughout the day. It, it varies with the level of sleep you've had or if you're sleeping. Your brain mm-hmm. is obviously not doing the same things when you're sleeping, although there's a lot of similarities. Um, so the, the state of your brain is just kind of which parts of your brain are active and which parts are less active, and that depends on what you're doing. So if you're speaking... Um, you know, certain parts of your brain are more active than if you're, uh, listening or drawing, or if you're making music, uh, it would be different parts of your brain that are active compared to if you're playing football. So the, the brain has different regions that are responsible for different sorts of things. And, um, it gets these signals sometimes from our hormones, uh, sometimes from blood sugar levels, whatever it might be, adrenaline, things like that, that, um, change the the focus. So one of the best ways to look at what the brain is doing or what state it's in, uh, there's a couple. One is to look at blood flow and one is to look at electrical activity because that'll kind of tell you which parts of the brain are the most active. How do I do that on my Apple Watch? Yep, Apple has just, uh, (laughs) yeah, they've got an app that they just rolled out part of Apple Health. Yeah, Yeah. No. But I would love to
0: hear more about these states because um, this is really uh, interesting when you talk about uh, lack of sleep, or or um, you talk about um, electrical activity or blood sugar activity. So your brain can go through
1: many states in one day, right? Oh, oh yeah, it's like always long. it's always in flux. Okay, yeah, yeah. and this is part of um, why you know we the So here's an argument. This is kind of the most common argument. Because the states are mental states, okay, so let me first maybe back up just a second. The mental state is the state of your mind. Um, So if I tell you to think of a number, uh, okay, think of a number 1 through 10. Nope, you were thinking of 7. I was. I appreciate it. You'd be (laughs) honest next time. Okay, think of an animal. A dog. Why do you do this? I know it was an elephant. I know. I know it was. I know it was, okay. But when you do that, so that's a... But think about what just happened there. You've got a private, subjective, what we call incorrigible, or something that can't be corrected by someone else from the outside. You've got an awareness of what you were thinking. When you were thinking of a dog, there's no way for me to know that, even with a brain scan of of the Mm -hmm. finest detail. But you have this mental state you're thinking of a dog, and you might decide, I want to, you know, if you're sitting in a class and the professor asks a question, you might decide you want to raise your hand or... You know, the thought as you're driving down the road uh, that maybe some chicken nuggets would be good causes you to turn into the turn lane and stop at the fast food restaurant. Mm -hmm. So your mental states and your physical states, what your body is doing, how it's moving, they're really intricately connected. So um, if you're tired, you might be crabby, right? Or if you uh, have depression or anxiety, you might find that an SSRI helps you with that, right? Or if you have bipolar, maybe it's lithium or whatever. We all know how hormones and lack of sleep or being distracted, that those all affect our mental life. So there's a, a, obviously a tight connection between what we're thinking and what our body is doing. And if I prick your finger with a pin, you'll feel the pain and you'll have this sensation. But the feeling of the pain is really a mental state. So the question is are all mental states really just brain states hmm. or are they the states of something that is not just the brain something that's not reducible to the brain so as what i describe myself as an integrative dualist somebody who believes that we have body and you know immaterial aspects to our person um generally the we we call the mind or the soul or the spirit we use them kind of interchangeably in philosophy especially but that thing is what is thinking. So when I say it is on my mind, I don't mean it is on my brain. And that's the whole push is to say, no, every time you think of it's on your mind, you should be just thinking it's on your brain. And the the argument for reducing the mind to the brain, for saying that all mental events are really just physical events that don't feel like physical events, is that they are so closely connected. Um, and this is supposed to be surprising. And if if you get later in the book, you'll read about what I call the surprise argument that says it would be sure it would sure would be surprising that the mind and body would be so, so connected and, and so causally interrelated if the mind or the soul or spirit is immaterial after all, I don't find it surprising at all. And you have to read the book because this, I mean, I, I don't want to make things too complicated but the idea is I I don't see why um, the mind and body can't be constantly interacting, integrated into a union as they are. And I also don't think that these are new observations. I mean, people have always known if you bash someone on the head with a club, they're going to go unconscious. I mean, the Romans had this expression in vino veritas, in wine there is truth, because they recognize that when you drink alcohol, your inhibitions are reduced and You think things are a good idea that you wouldn't think were a good idea if you hadn't. So there's always been awareness of the connection between brain or body states and mental states. Um, All we're doing now is really adding detail to the picture, but fundamentally we haven't developed any new knowledge. It's not like all of a sudden we realized the mental and, and the physical were connected. We've always known that. Everybody has always known that. We're just getting more detail but it's not really a new kind of knowledge. It's not a new insight. It's just filling in the gaps of of those correlations. Mm-hmm. So where does the soul fit in in all of this?
0: Because if I depart from my body and my soul goes to be with the Lord, so my brain goes there too? Because don't I get to think or be part of understanding? Or What so happens?
1: I, so the... I had a professor when I was doing my PhD, he ended up being um, my dissertation director, and he was a Christian and a brilliant philosopher, and he also had graduate training in biochemistry. And I remember in class one time, uh, he had said, "Uh, I don't know, we were talking about these issues. And he said, I don't know exactly what my brain does or how it works. All I know is that, that I don't need it to think. (laughs) <laughs> and that, you know, he says it to be provocative right. but the idea is that I will think without it at least for okay. a time. It's a good thing for us to be embodied. I mean, make no mistake in First Corinthians 15, for example, Paul makes a really big deal out of the resurrection and how important it is, especially the resurrection of Christ and that we long to be clothed with the immaterial. So having a body is how humans flourish but we can also exist without it in this immaterial state um, as we wait for our new bodies, as as we wait to be clothed uh, with the immortal, as Paul puts it. So, yeah, you don't need your brain to think, as strange as that sounds. Mm. And God certainly doesn't have a brain, and he thinks, doesn't he? He does think. Yeah. I, d- I had to stop and pause. Now, God doesn't have
0: a brain. Of course he does. He does not have a brain. No, of course he doesn't, but there's no smarter
1: person. Right. Right, then God. I mean, it just so happens that this is how the the human situation is, at least for now. But um, that's a contingent fact. It isn't necessary. We don't have to uh, have a body in order to exist or to be the person that we are. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk some more about mind-body
0: connection. I think this is a very fascinating topic, and I'd like to talk more about it. So I assume that there is a... That we focus on what our bodies are telling us, but if we have m- more positive mind thoughts, we can have a better connection with our bodies.
1: Does that sure, sound we, fair? yeah. I mean, there's right. all kinds of you know mindfulness, for example, is very popular right now in kind of therapeutic circles, mm-hmm. and that's helping uh, you know reminding your mind to reminding. Your mind mm-hmm. to be mindful of yeah. what's happening in your body. Because again, you are you. You are a person who is this integrated unity of body and soul. So, in philosophy, the history of philosophy, Plato talked about the soul as being in the body the way that a pilot is in a, a ship, or that the soul uses the body the way that a carpenter uses a tool, or that It's in the body the way a hand is in a glove. And Christian philosophers have not generally accepted that version of dualism. Dualism meaning that we are not just material, but Mm -hmm. we are also, uh, there's an immaterial aspect to our person. They haven't usually accepted that because it's too clean of a bifurcation. And so first of all, they've had some theological problems with it. But secondly, it doesn't really seem to capture our experience. I mean, if I bang my shin... I feel pain and I have this, these mental states that go along with that that are very different than if you know I'm, I'm driving my car and I hit a fire hydrant. I don't feel anything then. I mean, I might feel frustration and things like that. Mm-hmm. But I clearly have a different relationship with my body that amounts to an integrated union. So I am just this single integrated unity of body and soul. So my body and my mind are both just me. Very interesting. All right, we're going to take a little break. We're
0: talking to Dr. Brad Sickler. He's got his new book, and it is out. You can go pick it up today, order it. Um, It is called God on the Brain, what cognitive science does and does not tell us about faith, human nature, and the divine. You can also go to Crossway Books or Target or Barnes & Noble, anywhere you like. You can go pick it up. God on the Brain, Bradley Sickler. We'll be right back i'm back with dr brad sickler is this one of the most hard-hitting segments you've done i mean i'm just
1: do you want it to be oh you bet okay then yes okay good absolutely good yeah
0: because i'm This is a fascinating book, and he's uh, written a book on the brain. And aren't we all interested in the brain? There's been so much interest in, in brain activity, but let's find out what cognitive science does and does not tell us about faith, human nature, and the divine. And the book is called God on the Brain. So, Brad, let's talk about morality, and let's talk about our confidence in our own thoughts.
1: Can we trust what we are thinking? Well... That's a great question. Um, it depends on your worldview commitment. So let me start with if you're if you're one of these evolutionary naturalist materialists that I'm talking about. You think we're just a body, we're just a, a glorified monkey, okay? Well, then you have to say that the the cognitive apparatuses that we've developed, the scaffolding that helps us to think the way we do and navigate the world and and reason the way we do. You know, we can, if I say, Socrates was a man and all men are mortal, what can you conclude from that? I'm putting you on the spot. Socrates is a man and all men are mortal, yeah. Socrates is mortal. Right. And we do that. I didn't tell you Socrates is mortal. So you pulled that new information I out did. of there. I, you can remember what you had for breakfast today. Did you eat breakfast? It's the most important meal today. Okay. Yeah. So you can remember what you had for breakfast. You can make predictions about the future, right? If you were to stand up on this desk and uh, take a dive towards the window, probably pain would be one of the results. <laughs> mm-hmm. Laughter too, yeah, uh, at right. least on my end. But thanks, Brad. So we can make predictions, yeah. and we we can navigate the world. And the ability to do that is because our we can have confidence in our reasoning skills. So, the question is, what can account for that? And let's suppose that you're a materialist about persons and you don't think there's any design plan behind human nature. Why would you trust your ability to reason given that all that happened was there were these evolutionary processes that, for whatever reason, selected um, these habits of mind rather than different habits of mind? That doesn't, in other words, evolution, blind unguided evolution would not care about truth. It only would care about whether you're passing on genetic material. So when Dawkins says, you know, the genes are the replicators, we are their machines, and once we're done doing the replication job, they cast us aside. And lovely. that's, yeah, it, that's, so that's the chief end of man. You know, right. we, as Christians, we say it's to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Uh, to Dawkins, the chief end of man is to replicate genetic material and, and then be, yeah, and then be fed to the worms. Yeah. And that's it. So evolution doesn't care about whether you're able to access truth. And if you think about other, th- you know, the further you get away from very basic kind of survival things like. Am I able to eat that thing or is it going to try to eat me or whatever? You know, you start thinking about worldview questions like, is there a God? Do we survive the death of our bodies? These are very, very far away from anything that evolution would have had a hand in selecting because it promoted survival or reproduction. So you undermine the reliability of our cognitive faculties by saying we are just material objects selected by blind processes because they don't care about truth. So if you think that our reason is reliable and that it aims at truth and that uh, truth is a good thing to pursue, then it makes more sense to have a design plan and to have uh, more to us than just our bodies because another thing that factors into it is freedom and whether we can be free. So Sam Harris, another outspoken atheist kind of like in the Dawkins Club, um, he, he described us as biomechanical puppets. Okay. He, he says, we have no free will, we have the illusion of free will, but we don't have any actual freedom. How could we? We are just material objects. And this objection actually goes back more than three centuries. Uh, Newton struggled with this. He comes up with all these laws of motion to explain the behavior of material objects. And then he says, well, what about me? What about my body? I feel like I'm free to either turn to the right or to the left or to go to bed or to read a little longer or whatever, or to say kind words or to say mean words. I'm in control of my tongue and what it says. But how can I be if the causal nexus is closed, if the, the material world is all there is and everything that happens in it is just a function of fundamental laws of chemistry and physics operating on you know, protons, neutrons, and electrons? So I can't, there's no way for me to have any agency there. You, you, you can't deviate from the path that gets laid out as nature unfolds itself according to these laws. But if we aren't just material objects, right, just basically everything that happens in our brain is like a very complicated weather system, but there's really nobody in control. Um, But instead, if we are an integrated union of body and soul, then you can have that, that way to shoehorn in agency and freedom into again this material causal network otherwise you're just playing out the complicated programming that you know has lots of inputs and it and things are unpredictable because they're so complex but there's no real agency there and if there's not real agency there's not freedom and there's certainly not the ability to reason your way towards one decision or another Um, so again, a materialist, reductionist, evolutionary, naturalist view of a person has to be as basically an automaton or a a robot or a machine or a complicated weather system, a biomechanical puppet, whose thoughts are not reliable and whose insights are nothing but just, you know, steam given off by the engine as it runs. And it's interesting because Darwin himself said if... I'm right. If my theory is right, and this is all there is to us, and this is really where, where we came from, why should I trust my deliberations any more than I would, I would trust the opinions of an ape? He says, I have no reason to. So he was the first one to notice that 160 years ago, and we seem to have forgotten the lesson, but he was right.
0: When I think of some of the thoughts that you provided by Dawkins and Hitchens, and I think, well, they're kind of just following the the atheist puppet, because if you're not born in the image of God, you've got to come up with something, right?
1: Yeah, you do. Yeah, I mean, you have to sort of feel bad for the naturalist because they've, totally. got, <laughs> they've got so little to work with, and they're boxed in so tightly into this tiny corner. And as I said earlier, the only tools in their toolbox are mutations and natural selection. And if they can't be explained through that, they don't have an explanation. And so it's a really kind of a bleak, view of human nature and, and of morality because morality comes in the same way. So we talked about you know the importance of, of being able to have agency and that that's better explained on this biblical view that we are an integrated union of body and soul. But there's also the question of morality because a uh, an atheist, secular, materialist, evolutionary naturalist, the only reason that we have the moral beliefs that we have, which are, again, universal and natural, uh, the cognitive science shows us, is uh, just sort of of some fluke of evolution. If it had turned out, and this was, you know, there were a lot of debates about the implications of Darwin's theory in the late 1800s and what it meant. Um, Francis Dalton, one of his cousins, um, you know, said, this is why we need eugenics. And you had people like Friedrich Nietzsche saying, yeah, that's right, Uh, there's no, we need to move beyond the categories of good and evil. Mm -hmm. There's nowhere to put them anymore because uh, all we have are these blind forces. Mm -hmm. So why, you know, if if I want to kill my neighbor and steal all his stuff, well then, from Dawkins' perspective, I've done something that's going to promote the passing on of my genetic material. I've eliminated a competitor. I've increased my resources and therefore my survivability. What would be wrong with that? The most that a naturalist can say about any of those things is that we tend not to like it or it will get you in trouble. (laughs) <laughs> but that's a far cry from saying, no, it's it's a morally wrong, reprehensible thing to do. It's wicked. It, it's objectively evil. Yeah. They they have no resources to say something like that.
0: And stupid if your neighbor's got one of those attack tigers. I know. Yeah, well, I then, wasn't. Then your, your story ends. That's right. Yeah. So, Brad, you take us on this wonderful journey of the brain. Uh, where does the book sort of leave us? What are we thinking about at the end of this?
1: Well, hopefully again, you know, it's a defense of the claim that we are spiritual beings made to know God. And hopefully at the end, the reader will say, I do not feel like anything in the modern sciences, especially the neurosciences, threatens my faith, but I actually see how it all works beautifully together to support the traditional Christian teaching about human nature and why we're here and the reality of morality and the reliability of my belief in God and the reason it's natural is because he really is there and really did design us to know him, so that's that's kind of my hope that's, mm-hmm. so it's a it's an apologetic both for believers and unbelievers uh to s- affirm a biblical view of of our nature. Do you have any speculation
0: as to why there's such an explosion of interest in the brain
1: uh i I think part of it is that people want to have explanations uh, for what we are most interested in, and what are we more interested in than ourselves, right? (laughs) so true. And we've we've so lopped off any other sort of explanation or room for explanation, all you're left with is brain science. And so since we want to understand ourselves and we want to be happy and we want to improve our lives and things like that, uh, given the limits that we've set up, the only way to do that is to look at the brain. Mm -hmm. Do you think some are looking for excuses? if I can blame something on my brain, then I'm off the hook. Oh, for sure. Yeah, that definitely happens too.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: I think most people just want to understand who they are and why they do what they do. But I think that uh, the scriptures are the place to start with that. You know, you talk about the sin nature and the fall from grace and, you know, our hard wiring that moves us towards God as is clearly seen in places like Romans 1 or in a variety of Psalms. So I think We need to look for the things that have meaning in the place that can provide them, which is the scriptures. And science can't do that. Science Mm -hmm. can't give us meaning and value. Mm -hmm. Uh, Brad, when when we think of the brain and the pathways the brain
0: has uh, and the the ways in which we can condition, train the brain, are there things that we can uh, be doing to make it a healthier organ?
1: Oh, sure. And, you know, that's not really my expertise. I, I know, but it was kind of but, a fun question to ask. Yeah, no, I think, and I think it's important. And again, I mean, I'm, I'm not trying to downplay the, the brain or the importance of brain health or anything like that. No, well, I know you're but, not. But so, yeah, take care of your brain. It's, a, you know, just like you would take care of any of the rest of yourself. Mm-hmm. It is a part of who you are.
0: What was the hardest part of this book that you wrote? What was the one chapter you got kind of stuck on? Uh... I don't know.
1: I thought they were all hard. Okay, because
0: well, <laughs> as I'm going through it, I'm thinking this is a lot of work you've done on each chapter. Each sentence has got s- things to think about, and you did a lot of thinking in this book. Yeah, well, very I did. impressive. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I'd like to uh, just take a second here to just to see a show of hands. Uh, just raise your hand if you understood most of everything that Brad said today. Well, that's impressive. A lot of hands are up. Good. right now. Good. Then I we did our job. Yeah, I thought you did. An awesome job, Brad. Thanks, Bill. So, yeah, thanks for, for coming in and sharing your um, your book, new book. It's called God on the Brain, What Cognitive Science Does and Does Not Tell Us About Faith, Human Nature, and the Divine. Bradley Sickler is my guest, and you can uh, pick this book up. I have a feeling you're going to love this read. Um, I'm going through it myself, and it is uh, incredibly interesting. Have a great night, and God bless. I'll see you tomorrow. ¶¶